Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm absolutely thrilled to have with us today Yatsu, who is the co-founder as well as chairman of Animoca Brands. Animoca Brands is one of the foundational companies in the Web3 space, having pioneered NFT-based gaming as well as a number of other developments in the intersection of gaming and decentralized finance. And I'm really excited to talk about that as well as Yad's journey into his role today. With that, Yad, welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I look forward to our chat. Pleasure is all mine. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into technology? What were some of the early experiences that you had that were formational for you, that were foundational for your view of the world? Oh my goodness, now you're really asking to date me because my first experience with technology was really in the late 70s. <laughs> so probably before you and maybe most of the audience that's listening to us was born. You know, it started off really initially through you know, arcade video gaming was kind of one way that I experienced the world of technology, although I didn't really think of it as technology. It was just I played games, I had fun with that. You know, it was your typical arcade type of games, things like Karateka, Year Kung Fu, and of course I did experience Pong and so on, being the more classic style. But I would say the absolutely foundational experience in terms of technology was, so, my, you know, I studied music, my parents are musicians, and I ended up, you know, I wasn't very good at music in comparison to my parents, but, you know, being in sort of only Asian child in a very Chinese family, in that sense, uh, all the sort of legendary stories you hear about tiger parenting, it's all true. So I ended up basically studying music. And in order to advance, I guess, my studies in music, particularly in composition, I ended up writing MIDI software to help me. And this was in the 80s. And uh, in the 80s, of course, you weren't even allowed to use a calculator in the classroom. So using a computer to help you compose music was even more of a taboo. But, you know, I uploaded the software on a pre-internet service called CompuServe. And there I discovered a community that loved my software and even ended up sending me money, even though I was a kid and didn't have a bank account yet, as their way of appreciating sort of, you know, what I was writing at the time, helping other people compose music. Back then on an Atari ST, this was now in the 80s. And what it sort of changed in me was, you know, me growing up as an you know, Asian minority in Austria, one thing to understand back in Europe, I mean, even back, even today, there's not that many Chinese people there, but back then there were even less, right? I mean, probably within the 50 square mile radius, I possibly was one of the very few Asian faces around. And even though I speak German fluently and I grew up there, you always kind of felt that you were a little different, right? There was, there was a different time. And in the online world, we're kind of all the same because for those who will recall, the handle on CompuServe wasn't even a name. It was a number. Right, literally like a phone number. It was like seven six five zero whatever. Right, it was just different numbers, and 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 your identity was completely hidden from the world. You were quasi anonymous except for what you wrote, and people only judged you based on what you could do and what your skills were, and how you proved yourself. Literally, 
like a blank slate, right? It was kind of really sort of refreshing because there was no no historical sort of baggage or no prejudices or no biases that one could assume because you were literally someone new, someone fresh that had something that was potentially of value to the community. And the community just rallied around you to based on what you were able to do. That's one. And, and the second one, of course, that's actually how I got my job at Atari because Atari then reached out to me, again, not knowing that I was just maybe 12 or 13 at the time and that I, you know, that I was a kid and that I was basically sort of, you know, Asian kid in Austria, that didn't matter. It was more like, so you, we like what you wrote, come into the office, we want to talk to you. I pop up, obviously they were surprised, but I still got the opportunity because it didn't really matter, right? And I think we see that pattern happen time and time again. You could be very young or you may not even have gone to college, but if you know how to write smart contracts, for instance, or if you knew how to do web apps in the early days, or if you knew how to design a web page in the 1990s, or if you knew how to write sort of mobile apps in sort of 2010, 2011, you had a job, you had an opportunity, you had a growth path because you were basically just judged by what you were able to do. So that was definitely foundational in terms of opening sort of, I guess, my interest in, in the potential in technology. And later would be sort of maybe the view of the metaverse as a community online that was basically as real to me, if not more real to me, than my sort of physical network that I had also had in, in, in different places. Fascinating in so many directions to go from here. And maybe it's too early to bring up this topic, but I'll I'll give it a shot anyway. You've described the experience of being represented by a phone number or you know, a string of numbers on CompuServe and the experience of uploading or sharing the software that you've written with an anonymous group of strangers who rally around you as a community. And of course that resonates almost it's very symmetric to what the Web3 architecture is around identity and pseudonymity and the ability to contribute in a way without being permission to contribute. Between now and that early version of the internet, we had this strong turn towards identity and you know real names and Facebook and the social graph and all this stuff. Can you talk about the difference in that architecture for the internet, the difference between being anonymous and coming kind of, you know, from the hacker army, but at the same time being able to contribute so positively versus the advantages that maybe we get from real identity and our actual social graph in the physical world. But then what do we sacrifice in exchange for that? Yeah, I mean, this is a very complex topic. And I think, you know, society at large is probably still grappling with this idea of, you know, I guess what you're implying really is the tension between, to one extent, sort of your your liberties and how much liberty and freedom you have versus how much are you going to sacrifice in exchange for basically the cohesion of the network, or in this case, the community, because of the fact that you need to have some kind of disclosure and some kind of accountability, right? Which is kind of why, why blockchain is so fascinating and in the state of the world that we are in right now, where really you can have a community when there's a breakdown in trust, right? If people don't trust each other, then that's it, we're done. And I think one of the interesting things about the early days of, I guess, you know, CompuServe, as it were, one of the reasons why I'm broadly very optimistic in life, um, not just because I feel like I've had sort of, you know, blessings along, uh, along the way that sort of my life developed, but also the fact that generally speaking, when you enter into these new communities, you enter in a mode of trust. For the most part, people go and trust, right? They don't go and distrust necessarily. I mean, there are those that do, 
But when you think about it, when you go into a party or when you go in to meet a bunch of new people, or when you start your new job, or when you go to college or you enter school for the first time, your first natural human reaction seems to be one of, well, maybe you're anxious, but you're trusting. You open up yourself a little bit. And then there's other people around you who open themselves up to you and they welcome you or they talk to you or they do something, but you're generally brought into an environment for the most part that is welcoming you, meaning that you're entering in some kind of trust network, and that basically forms a community in which you grow from. And maybe over time that changes, but the point is, is that we seem to have a default mode in which we're trusting rather than we're not. Even though we say people, you have to be careful, you know, don't do this, don't do that. But generally speaking, we are still trusting of each other somehow. And I think this is the other thing that's so amazing about blockchain as well, is that while you have an architecture, you know, this is permissionless trust, where you have sort of a validation of certain facts of you know your transaction record or your history or your asset base or whatever that may be, but still to transact with it from a human level still requires an incredible amount of trust. And we're talking about a trust that is now delivered to the billions and billions of dollars, no longer with human counterparties, but essentially algorithmic counterparties, but that were still written and developed by humans with you know backgrounds in technology and motives that are completely unknown to you. And I think the, the early days of the internet, really, I think the champion of that thought was open source. And that was really something that completely attracted me to the early days of the internet, because we were able to fully democratically access information and share that information. And your voice that may not have been the wisest voice still had meaning as opposed to, you know, it had to be written by an author or it had to be a professor. You know, I grew up in an era in the 70s and 80s where authority was top down where the teacher was your authority, where the professor was your authority, when you had written a book, you were authority. But if you were someone on the street having an opinion or having a thought, you were just a lone voice that had no authority and nobody really took you seriously per se. And today, you know, I mean, you know, over the course of the evolution of the internet, for better or for worse, everyone has a voice and you could be an apparent nobody and you might have a million followers on YouTube or something, or you might have a presence on Instagram that is significant. And you have some importance because people share in that thought, in that belief, and you, you have a voice. And with open source, what was interesting is that that voice actually was probably the first example of something that was very community-based, where you write software, and in a barter-type way, I share the code, and if you make alterations to the code, your bargain is that you may use everything that was written by all these thousands of other people, but whatever you wrote with that code, you must give back. Now, again, if you were not trusting then you would just take the code, do whatever, and pretend that <laughs> it was never shared, right? And then go off and, you know, some people did that, of course. But for the majority of the people, they didn't do that. They honored a kind of trust arrangement that was really a handshake, if you think about it, because it was scarcely enforceable. And you would basically write software, and then you contributed back. And why did you do that? You did it because you wanted to be respected by that community. At the end, you wanted that connection to say, hey, look, I gave something valuable, and I was appreciated for it because other people in the network of the peers of who wrote software appreciated you back. And that was more valuable and powerful than necessarily the pure economic benefits you might have taken if you ripped it off, right? And, 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 and that basically grew into the biggest software movement in history to the point where no single company, no matter how large, is able to compete with the power of open source, right? So that's kind of, you know, I guess the positive of where that's developed and thinking around sort of, around sort of a shared, the a kind of, sharing of resources. But I think one of the paradigms that changed when we went from Web 1 to Web 2 
is the data paradigm. Because data is something that was a little bit harder to sort of understand because data itself was something that could only be understood through the process of, you know, basically the deep learning algorithms that were there that could analyze the data, meaning no human was able to understand sort of the, 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 the data that was being presented and the volume at which it came about. And we didn't really have sort of value in data up until the mid-2000s when sort of deep learning really sort of hit its stride. And when you had the kind of computational power and the GPUs that were able to process that. And at that point, data became the valuable construct. Yes, code was important, but actually data is what drove, it was essentially the fuel that made what people wrote valuable and powerful because you make analytics and you could analyze stuff from this, you know, and then derive essentially sort of incredible sort of knowledge and power as a result. And it gave rise to these data monopolies that can monopolize this, this data, you know, whether it's the Facebooks of the world, the Amazons, the Googles, all of them, which have become the most powerful companies in the world. So data effectively... Is the, is the new oil, right? And, and that became monopolized. And as we are now constantly providing value to the networks that we believe we enjoy, such as an Instagram, actually we're feeding the network with our data. And now it's actually become no longer bi-directional benefit. It's become very much one-directional with the illusion that we're getting some social value in the form of likes, which are meaningless actually. But then in exchange, we give them our data which they then use to create derivatives of analysis and other forms of value that then they sell back to us in the form of advertising. And next thing you know, we've become the product. And so to me, Web3 is the antidote to that, which is to say, well, wait, now that sort of data, which is written to these private databases that are controlled by these large corporations, have our private goods now become public and open in blockchain. We're basically going back to the whole original promise of the internet, which was this sort of more open and democratic sort of sharing of resources, basically back where the data is basically effectively shared. But now the data has value because it's on-chain, and therefore we're sort of sharing, frankly speaking, in the, in the sort of benefits of what the data can derive, which then comes down in the form of, you know, it could be crypto, it could be NFTs, it could be a whole bunch of things. You know, those are the first iterations in which we now enjoy, enjoy from where we had shared knowledge to now basically enjoying shared value in these shared networks that is Web3. I think there's a distinction also between the business model of Web2, which is the monetization or the commercialization of data and the consequent building of AI and algorithms to maximize the commercial yield of the data and all of that going through sponsorship and advertising and things of that nature. And then, you know, the, the commercialization separate from the actual thing, which is bringing physical relationships and the real social graph. And I don't mean real to say that digital relationships aren't real, but the physical social graph that you get out of universities and, and proximity to people and so on, bringing that world into the digital environment. You know, so it's been undermined by the commercial model, but is the very project of uploading our social graph, a bad project? Like, is there no other outcome than for it to be used as this type of feudal resource? What do you think? When we think about evolution, broadly speaking, you know, the fact that we can share more, and so that's really my belief, and do more together is a, is a, is a positive thing. So in as a net basis, if I'm sharing my social graph, it should be for the benefit for other people and others in the network that can derive value from that. And again, I think of this as a valuable member of society, right? If you are a valuable member of society, 
whether your graph is direct or indirect, you're contributing to it. And I don't mean just in the form of paying taxes. Obviously, that's one way that you could be contributing, right? But there's other things like you you you, you set up a shop or you make friends or you, you give ideas, right? So so every you know in in a, in a in a city or in a country, every productive member of society as a human basically is a productive node that has network effects that come from it, right? They they evolve and they grow and and they help the, the evolve that. And of course, there's some people who who aren't good. But for the most part, we're positive members and we're sort of contributing to these network effects. And so to me, a social graph as you as an individual is exactly the same thing. I'm uploading a part of myself to the world so that it can benefit from that in some form and I receive benefits back for it. The problem we have is that up until blockchain came around, we, you know, the data was written to private databases. And who controlled these private databases? They were the Facebooks of the world. And these companies realized, you know, in the beginning... They said, that's great, and I can offer you a service. And then they realized, wait, we have all this sort of valuable data that's now written to us at incredible amounts of data and speed. And we can derive so much more out of it by monopolizing it. And you can see this trend. If you look at the evolution of Facebook's terms of service, it's gotten more draconian over time, right? It's, you know, before it was like anything goes. And then they said they, 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 they added these clauses where they changed the rights and what we could do with the data. And eventually sort of, you know, removed access to certain things, and then eventually added clauses that if you were quasi-competitive, then you would be banned, and all that kind of stuff, right? And you couldn't do that if this was something that was a public good. But of course, from you know from a private perspective, you are entitled to do whatever you want to. So that's the, the private terms of service. So you end up creating these data monopolies because you were able to do so. So to me, that's analogous to the early days of code where you had closed source code. But of course, the issue with closed source code is that you can't get the benefit of the networks of external people writing to that code because it's paradoxical that if you open it up to the world, then they would have access to your intellectual property. Yes, they could contribute to it, but at the same time, they could take away from it. So how do I figure out a way in which I can grow yet still sort of not lose my so-called competitive advantage? And the answer back then was to create a walled garden, which is what's happening with data. But as we have seen with open source, when the millions of code basically came in, coders came in to create sort of, you know, more better and raw and sort of innovative and creative code, no single organization could compete. And eventually they all gave up and realized that there were other business models and other ways of making value from a code that was now written by millions of people in which you could co-contribute rather than basically monopolize. And I think with data, you know, we're getting to that same point where data was monopolized. But the problem is, is that when data is monopolized or anything is monopolized, it starts to only be for the benefit of the few. And every time you have that situation, you have an imbalance. And in this imbalance, there's going to be a, whether you call it a revolution or reaction to it, to say, wait, that's not right. Because at the end of the day, who are you serving? Right? You're not serving an algorithm, although one might argue that, that could change with AIs. You're actually serving your customers who are your people who are part of your network. I mean, what is Instagram? without its users, you know, what is Google without people searching, for instance, right? I mean, even, you know, a chat GPT would not be as valuable if there weren't people using it and asking it prompts and questions for which it obtains intelligence and reactions and, and learns from that process, right? So, so we're all contributing to that network. It's just written in a manner where it doesn't seem to contribute to the benefit of others for the time being. And certainly in the case of, of the of the web to protocols. But remember, Facebook, when it launched, was entirely open. Everyone could just build whatever they wanted on it. It was a fire hose of, 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 of networking capabilities. And then Zynga just became too big because with Farmville, they suddenly were a platform that potentially could observe Facebook itself. 
And in a kind of funny way, you know, were probably in the middle of beginning their own vampiric attack on the, 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 the social network that was Facebook. So Facebook reacted by basically sort of, you know, changing their terms of service and sort of shutting them down effectively and almost taking them out of business, which again, in Web3, you can do, which is why you have all sorts of vampiric attacks, you know, in, in blockchain. <laughs> There's an interesting uh, parallel reality where Zynga does become the larger company buys up Instagram, you know, and goes on to become a conglomerate of gaming and social networking. But let's talk about a much more relevant gaming company, which is Animoca. Tell us about your journey into founding that business and maybe some of the early hypotheses that you had. I'd love to come to the metaverse and the NFT experience that you've gone through over the last couple of years, but Certainly that wasn't yet there when you started to build the business. So tell us how that came about. What were you thinking? What was the moment like and some of the initial things that worked? The journey for me in gaming really started when I was a kid, right? And even my first job when I was really a teenager was with Atari, which was at the time the leading games company, arguably, before they got wiped out by Nintendo. And I would say my thoughts, even though they weren't called the metaverse, the experiences I had already back then in the late 80s and early 90s were all sort of, I guess, pre-metaversal, you could say, in the sense that I bought my first virtual item in a multi-user dungeon called Perilous Realms, I think. Maybe it was 91, 92, I don't remember. It was a virtual sword, you know, which, which some player earned inside the game. And these were months, multi-user dungeons. So there was no graphic interface. It was, you know, you would literally, when you go from place to place, you would type you know, go east and go west and go north, right? And sometimes if it was a long haul, you press go north 10 times, right? <laughs> Until you can't get there and then something shows up, right? And you communicated with people. And and the way that I received my virtual sword was I literally sent a check-in. It was cashed in and maybe a few weeks later, he said, okay, meet me in this pub, in this game, and I'll just give you the sword. That's amazing. The amount of trust you must have had to do that is fantastic because I say my personal experience with trading in video games was largely being scammed uh, in Diablo <laughs> 2 by people telling me to drop items on the ground, which I did as a, you know, as a 13-year-old and then immediately losing them. Yes, and I think this is the point about society as it grows, right? Because and I think we kind of have a similar setup when it comes to history as well, right? When you were hunter-gatherers, in the community of 150, 100 to 150 people, everyone knows each other. So if I go ahead and say, hey, this guy just stole money from me, then it's a, it's a conflict. And whether you can prove it or not, at the end of the day, you still have to deal with the fallout. But you know something like Diablo or World of Warcraft, where you have millions of people playing the game, who the hell cares whether this person lost a sword or not, right? I mean, you know, what kind of enforcement strategies can you have? And I think this is true also in societies. You know, we have to sort of start to go from hunter-gatherer setups where we trusted each other because everyone knew whose cow it was, to basically go to societies where there were hundreds of thousands of people living in towns and villages, and nobody knew who owned what. So you needed to have a registry, or you needed to have a king, or you needed to have some central authority at the time, because we didn't have blockchain, to sort of validate your ownership of things, right? So you were able to sort of then actually, and then you needed an enforcement mechanism, right? So all of these all of these things sort of were interesting evolutions around how we as humans are trying to sort of bring order and a sense to basically maintaining trust in our communities. But, you know, to go back into sort of the thesis points around Animoca brands, you know, that, that history began early on and evolved over time. 
having also built an ISP and having been involved in open source code and very much involved in the Linux community in the in the mid to late 90s, and then eventually selling our cloud computing business to IBM, we went back into gaming, basically with the advent of you know the App Store opening on the iPhone uh, around 2010, 2011, where we launched basically a mobile game called Pretty Pet Salon, which became a big hit. We were one of the first companies to utilize in-app purchases and adopt what was known back then as the free-to-play or freemium business model. One thing to remember back then, games were paid. You paid for the wrapped software, or you might pay for a subscription, a la World of Warcraft, and then you play the game with as much content as you wanted. And the free-to-play business model was still very much in its infancy, where people would be able to play the game entirely for free, and if they wanted to, then they could pay. And actually, that turned out to be the superior business model, but back then, nobody really knew. We were pioneers in that space. And you know, part of the thesis was based on mobile gaming, this idea that the smartphone, led by Apple at the time, was going to be this revolutionary digital interface to your life and everything else. And games would be a really big part of it. And we would be more making mobile games, which is essentially something that we love to do. And you know, Animoca basically became Animoca Brands over time because we licensed a lot of third-party brands, well-known sort of IP, to make popular mobile games. But one of the experiences that was transformative to us was that we got deplatformed by Apple because they accused us, and we think, they never said it to us, of gaming the App Store. So that's what we think happened. What we figured out was that if we launch an app every week and cross-promote, we'd always be at the top of the App Store rankings. <laughs> because back then, you know, App Store rankings weren't very sophisticated. I think it was just based on the number of downloads. And so we were very good at doing that. And at one point, 12 out of the top 20 apps in the world were made by Animoca or Animoca-related companies, shall we say. And then, uh, I, you, know, you know, I remember this was in February, I think it was 2012, you know, I was in the air, air, airport and, you know, the office frantically calling me and says, we need to have an emergency, what happened? All our apps are gone. And, you know, that was sort of a flash of, oh my goodness, what just happened, right? And, you know, we didn't receive an email, nobody told us. We had hundreds of apps on the App Store and it all evaporated overnight because someone just pressed the kill switch we contacted everyone we could and couldn't get back in, in business. And we were not back in the App Store until a year plus later, at which point we had, of course, lost our pole position. You know, and I'm sharing all of that because that was really our very first experience in sort of what happens when you were beholden to centralized platforms. And of course, today, there's millions of stories of, of companies that are being deplatformed, big and small, or individuals that lose their handles just because the platform decided on a whim, basically, kind of like a dictator that you shouldn't have it anymore without any kind of adjudication or without any kind of way in which we could sort of appeal whatsoever. And and I think the the appeal then, you know, we our studio in Vancouver called Fuel Powered was involved in building this little thing in 2017 called CryptoKitties. And of course we didn't really know much about it until the launch. And when we saw that, not only were we excited and fascinated about sort of this idea that you could have, you know, sort of the NFT, just in the form of NFTs, these digital items that were not that were controlled by the community effectively and, and were really sort of your sovereign property online. It was also really a way in which we felt that the end user would have finally more control over their digital sort of destiny, as it were. And that was really the big appeal point to us. Can I ask you the question just in terms of how you were involved in building that out? Because I know there, you know, there's like the flow team. How did you collaborate to build the experience? At the time, Fuel Powered, which was our studio in Vancouver, shared an office with another company called Axiom Zen. And Mick, who is the sort of co-founder of Fuel, has really, really good friends with Rohan, 
who is the CEO of Axiom. And, and that company was actually the one that was building the protocol of CryptoKitties, and it needed people to help them with the game design and the gaming elements. And this is where Mick and Fuel Powered came in. You know, Mick was actually meant to become the head of North America for Animoca Brands. This was now in 2017. And when sort of CryptoKitties completely took off, so this was before Dapper was even formed, by the way, there was an opportunity to basically bring this new entity to life called Dapper Labs, which is essentially spun off by Axiom Zen. Mick could be a co-founder of that business. And that's when we negotiated a deal where that we would become the publishers of CryptoKitties in our part of the world, which Animoca Brands became in January of 2018. And that we would also become investors in Dapper as well, which we did as well back in the early days as part of that trade. And we, of course, became partners with Dapper Labs as well for future and, and current engagements as well and everything else that was involved. So that's kind of the background. So, you know, our relationship started with, I guess, the team that helped build CryptoKitties before it became Dapper Labs and before Flow blockchain even became a reality. I mean, Flow was a reaction to the struggles they had with Ethereum with CryptoKitties. You're seeing the idea of ownership starting to transfer into ownership of publishing of the applications themselves, right? So the app store can't censor you. I don't know if you've talked with Dan Finley, the founder of MetaMask, but in his founding story of MetaMask is also an example of Apple pulling an application that he wrote. I mean, there's so many. And we we're investors in, in consensus. So we, we, we had conversations about about sort of some some stories and, and backwards. And I think a lot of people who are in our space have had some kind of experience of sort of, you know, I guess, as they describe, centralized horrors. I mean, I don't know whether this is true or not, but even, you know, maybe it's an urban legend, but, you know, even sort of the story about Vitalik and his experience with World of Warcraft sort of character, his World of Warcraft character was sort of, you know, I don't know whether this is sort of comical or not, but, you know, he became, he realized, at least in this version of events that, you know, the horrors of centralization after they nerfed his gaming assets and because they became worthless, right? So so there's there's so many stories when you just add all the people in gaming that basically have their asset values and and and, and, and everything they purchased in games nerfed pretty much every season, then this type of thing happens to, you know, I guess millions of millions of people. And they've come to accept it, by the way. They think that's almost normal because they've been conditioned to accept it, which is of course absolutely not okay. So I'm interested in two directions. One is to ask you about what makes a successful gaming experience as it relates to things that you were building. What are some of the psychological or behavioral things that you were targeting in building experiences? And then I'm also curious as to what you've done with that insight of seeing CryptoKitties become very popular and having this all take off, whether you know it's 2018, I think, what moves you you started to take next? So I don't know if there's a way to integrate these questions. I think it's related. So let me first start with the principle. We published a piece, I think it was in 2018, and I gave a talk about that in the early days. I remember it was like a half empty room of maybe 30 people, <laughs> something like that. It's like, this is the vision. This is why it's so important. And, you know, back then, you know, scarcely anyone cared. But the 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 point of this, I think there might even be a YouTube video on this one. It's, it's called Content is the Platform. And what we meant by that definition, and this, this basically pretty much is the thematic around Web3 and Web3 gaming that we subscribe to, which is that we, no longer are we is is are we going to be sort of is the platform going to be a discovery system that is owned by someone else, but rather our ownership and us as content creators we become our own platforms 
because now we have this ability to have sovereign ownership of these things, right? So in other words, the content layer, the fact that we have property rights over the content can become a platform. And I often gave this example in my talks around how ownership of cars has become a platform or ownership of anything has become a platform, whether it's real estate or even iPhones, for instance, because they've become a platform for iPhone cases or in the case of a car, it's a platform for selling you tires or having drivers or having Uber or having Lyft or having people sort of paint your cars or like, you know, the industry around the ownership of cars is far greater than actually the people working in the car industry in and of itself, right? And that's because so many people can now utilize the sort of ownership of cars as a platform of their own growth. And when you think of everything you're purchasing in the real world, actually, you're not necessarily buying them because of the single utility. You're buying them because it adds on to something else that you own, that owns something else that is owned by someone else or sort of created from these networks. And you have these basically infinite network effects that are constructed that way. And so that was a main thesis point. And so we think the same, same when it comes to Web3 gaming as a, as a, or just generally about NFTs. And Web3 gaming was the focal point in, in the early days and still is in, in many ways because we felt that gamers intrinsically understood virtual ownership more naturally because of things like you know, CSGO skin trading and items and, and gold in, virtual, in World of Warcraft. So we thought the connection between you know, virtual currency to cryptocurrency and sort of you know, digital skins to NFTs wasn't too far remote, and therefore we could onboard people more easily. So that's really the thesis around that. But, but the whole point about content being the platform is around interoperability, right? The idea that if I had, for instance, a skin in Fortnite, and if it was, for instance, on-chain, then thousands of other game companies in the world are going to adopt that skin in their own games because they want access to the Fortnite customer. But in exchange, of course, Fortnite itself would gain more value because its skins would be more desirable because owning a skin has utility in turn 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 different different environments, for instance, and beyond that, right? And we can see these early kinds of effect, you know, even in non-gaming ways. Like with, you know, when, when DeFi Summer came around, people were providing, you know, lending for NFTs or liquidity provisioning for NFTs or all these other things that we hadn't really thought of because they were able to build other kinds of businesses and experiences on top of the ownership of other people's assets, right? So, so the thesis is around this idea that, you know, great gaming experiences are containers for the assets that we own. Meaning that a successful game isn't going to be just because the game plays well. In fact, it's going to be about the experiences of your ownership and the identity that you experience on top of that ownership. And then you let people compose them. So one example that was inspired us, and this is the genesis of why we basically ended up acquiring Sandbox and, and building it out to what it is today, was Minecraft. Minecraft is a great example of a community game that you're not playing because it has the best visual graphics. You're playing it because millions of other people around the world have built a business around the ownership of Minecraft by running Minecraft servers and Minecraft experiences. And now buying a Minecraft license from Microsoft today, because it's now acquired by Microsoft, you know, is actually simply effectively the quasi-NFT access pass to the community of everything that Minecraft offers. You're not actually buying the Minecraft license from Microsoft just to play the version of Minecraft that is a single-player game yourself. You're playing it to engage communities, to play in Forge, to play in, in sort of, you know, Mindplex, or whatever these other experiences are that other people are, are there for, right? So that's kind of what inspired us around that thinking, and this is how we think gaming will broadly evolve, because game discovery will then also be built on your ownership of things. And we can see this with the NFT collections. If I own a board ape, I become a target of things, because I know I'm a customer, of a certain kind of range of things because I have money or value. You know, what's the reason why 
HSBC or Standard Chartered or DBS, you know, which are banking institutions, are building on the sandbox because the average landowner in sandbox has a net worth of between half a million to a million US dollars that you can see on chain. So these are perfect private wealth sort of clients that you could be targeting. So you want to build where your potential customers might be, for instance, right? So these are kind of public network effects that you can now avail yourself to that you couldn't do before. And so everything essentially becomes this intermingled, interoperable platform in which we can grow experiences, you know, from within and create essentially constant growing network effects. I'm really interested in any indicators that you pay attention to, and in particular, indicators around adoption and generational adoption of digital as kind of the core third space for where people do activities and build identities. You know, I think it's, we come up with st- narratives based on, well, if, you know, if you look at sports and then you look at esports and esports revenue starting to eclipse football revenue in certain cases and certain events being bigger than the Super Bowl in the US, you know, that, that's kind of one direction that, that we talk about. But is there any indicator that's starting to reveal that the average user is bringing their economic self to the digital third space that, you know, it's not just decoration and leisure. And there's nothing wrong with decoration and leisure. There's nothing wrong with signaling. But I think for the themes of the metaverse as a real economic space, to be true, you need to see real market share for goods and services and labor to shift into into building things in that space, right? So is it... 5% of our GDP that's going to be built in Minecraft or EVE Online or, or World of Warcraft? Is it, 10, is it 30%? And what do we look for? What do we measure to see if these arguments are true or if they're imaginations? So first, talking about where we are right now, you know, video gaming generally is a $200 plus billion industry, which is bigger than music and the film industry combined. And of that $200 billion, approximately $100 billion, especially spent on virtual goods of one form or the other. And these virtual goods are mostly whimsical and decorative in nature, meaning they're skins and they're trinkets and make your weapons look cool, or it's like maybe a virtual house of some sort. And again, I'm not talking about on-chain, I'm just talking about all Web2 type of games. So, you know, and those, by the way, is, is in a network of over 3 billion gamers in the world, which is a bit more than, you know, half of the world's internet. So the majority of the world are gamers already, and they're engaging in the form of virtual good, in which if you ask them whether you own them, they would already tell you, oh yeah, I think I do own them, when in fact they're just renting them. Because of course it doesn't say it that way, but you have absolutely no ownership. And this is essentially a lease for, at, at the pleasure of the game studio that's operating it. So, so I think we're already there when people talk about the metaverse, you know, we just have a version of the metaverse that is essentially feudal in construction. And so the next step of that is to go from, you know, a feudal society into a more democratic capitalist one, which is essentially how I see the evolution from one way from medieval ages essentially to modernity, is kind of how I see us evolving obviously much faster in the evolution of Web 2 to Web 3 games. So to us, that makes, you know, sort of a lot of sense. And there's also, by the way, a difference in the markets, right? So for instance, in Asia, the adoption is significantly higher and faster as bigger game studios are all saying, we're going to do this versus in the West, particularly in the US, because of the negative reactions around NFTs and particularly blockchain because of the scandals and because, you know, in our view, the association with capitalism being so strongly connected with Web3 has been very much something that I think a lot of people, it touches a nerve. They may not necessarily interpret it as such, but it, it feels distasteful to them. 
that is, you know, that it feels so capitalist in construction. So they're rejecting it in comparison to Asia. So you see a, a, a momentary bifurcation in terms of how those industries are developing. So the U.S. lens might be, well, you know, I don't think anyone cares for this and we're not interested. Whereas the Asian lens is, you know, well, absolutely this is the future and everyone needs to do it and every major game studio is, is having a Web3 strategy of some form or the other, right? So, it's, so that's also, by the way, unique. One of the striking pieces of data is just e-commerce adoption, right? So e-commerce adoption in the U.S., I think, peaked at 17% and during COVID and is now down to something like 15%. And that is with the incredible footprint of Amazon and everything involved in that. Whereas in China, e-commerce adoption is something like 60 or 70%. And you know, electronic payment methods are similarly much more commonplace. So even in something in an area that is less exciting or sort of glitzy than gamification and NFTs, there is a big cultural difference. Exactly. And I think that is where the translation essentially of digital ownership and things like NFTs, blockchain and Web3 gaming becomes more natural because you're already in this sort of hyper-connected way, digital connected way that, you know, is it feels almost alien for someone who hasn't been to a place like in China where literally <laughs> your beggars in the street are basically asking for digital money rather than for anything physical, for instance, right? Which seems so improbable, but there they are showing their QR codes where you can give them deposits. And I think the, so to the question as to sort of what markers are we looking for, right? I mean, outside of general wallet adoption and so on, I think, you know, there's a few things that we're doing in the space to help advance it, right? So for instance, today we just announced that we just became, you know, one of Ton's largest validators. Ton is connected to the Telegram network, right? And Telegram basically has, 800 million users. And that to us is basically a very natural, another natural way in which we can bring sort of, you know, Web3 adoption because of the fact that it's easier to set up a wallet and that you can basically begin that from, you know, the Telegram experience through basically Ton Wallet and, you know, build gaming experiences and build other things on top of it where you can basically move on to the world of, of Web3 and, and everything that's related to that. And then also with what we're doing with Mochaverse and Mocha ID, which is basically our decentralized identity solution, it's a way to basically allow us to create new sort of trust networks in a zero-knowledge proof way that you have an identity that's soul-bound or you can now trust to build on them and you know that this is a good actor, for instance, or it's someone who's played this kind of game or has this kind of experience points and other experiences without revealing their name, but at least you know that he's a valid user and therefore you know, I'm, you know, he's, he's, it's, it's money well spent or I can target him appropriately. In some ways, that's how sort of NFT ownership has gotten value. For instance, as I said earlier, if you own land and sandbox, you are a certain kind of user. If you own sort of, you know, a board ape, you're a different kind of user, but we know what kind of user you are for the most part. You know, today advertising is completely broken. I'm sort of spending money targeting users. I have no idea who they are. The same user might be seeing the ad a thousand times or a million times, or this ad is being sent to all sorts of irrelevant users, you know, because of the fact that it's completely obscured to me. Right. So in, in fact, I would say that the classic advertising industry is perhaps, you know, in some ways highly fraudulent, except that they benefit from it in the name of obscuring privacy and identity, when in fact the targeting mechanisms are, I would say, really, really bad. But it benefits the networks that sell you the advertising to have bad targeting, if you think about it that way, right? So 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 again, Web3 solves these things. And I think these are the things what when we look at in the businesses, how they address them, because the ones that do it the best are actually the ones that ultimately have, you know, the best business results. Now, I would also say, by the way, that there is a distinction between the, let's call it Web 2 and Web 3 user. I don't really fully like that term because 
it kind of denigrates the Web2 user in a way, right? which is not really what we want to say. But for the purposes of our conversation, let's, let's stick to sort of that generational argument. And what it means is that to be fully a Web3 user means that you're someone who's already somewhat financially literate. You have an understanding of money and value. You probably have a more capitalist frame, frame, a sort of frame of mind. And you look at things not only in terms of the experiences, but also of things of value, right? Like some, some people, you know, they might buy something, but they also compare whether it's a good deal or whether it's something of value versus other people who really just purchase things, you know, somewhat mindlessly and just think about sort of the moment of the experience, but don't actually go any deeper or further than that, which is the majority of the world. Meaning that the number of people that understand financial, have a sense of financial literacy and or invest, for instance, you know, and we're not talking about Web3, just generally do investments or have sort of active stock investments is a single digit percentage in the world relative to the rest of the world. And so when we talk about Web3 gaming, you have this Venn diagram of people who are financially literate and people who are in gaming. And then actually the intersection of that Venn diagram is actually a very small percentage, right? And these are, by the way, the kind of people who are maybe the ones who are trading on CSGO skins, or these are the people who are understanding of you know, economics inside games, and they, and, and they trade and they play in a certain manner that most of the other gamers don't. And I think one of the, one of the difficulties in most of the, you know, we've done over 140 Web3 game investments so far, and one of the challenges that they've had in the early days in terms of bringing people on board is how do you bring a Web2 user into a Web3 environment when this element of ownership is alien to them? Right, even though they feel they should own it, they don't know what to do with it because it's not something that anyone's told them to do or they felt is of value because they were literally there to experience the game rather than the meta game around, even though that's the area of monetization. And that's, by the way, also true for the monetization of free to play games, which is the predominant revenue source of games. The conversion from free to paid users is an average industry of is only 1.6%. And you know, if you're a really good game, you convert three, four, sometimes 5% of the gamers. But we haven't come to a point where you're converting, for instance, 20 or 30% of the gamers. If you did, the gaming industry would be a trillion dollar plus industry, right? It would be much bigger than the $200 billion that we are today. And that again comes down to the fact that this is a sort of, you know, from the Venn diagram sort of overlapping circles is a small segment of that. And that's basically the part that the, the Web3 game companies have been struggling because they're making assumptions that the Web2 user will just simply wholesale move into Web3 with everything that comes with it and it automatically convert, which is, of course, not true, right? And so what we look for is how the, even because even the Web3 user who is a gamer is also only a small intersection of the total population of people who are Web3. And this is an experience that we can share because back in 2018, up until 2020, we had to still convince people in Web3 that gaming was potentially big in blockchain. They're like, yeah, because they don't play games, right? They, they don't care. They were the 40% of the world that were interested in things other than gaming. And, you know, they knew about games, but they didn't know how big it was. You know, maybe their children did it, maybe their nephew did it, but they themselves weren't engaged in it. They were engaged in a very different kind of game. They were engaged in the game of financial services and of trading tokens and that kind of stuff. So that was their environment. And so what Web3 gaming has done and the successful elements of that is the blending of the two, meaning that, you know, Web3 are already are basically all playing this meta game, the meta game of, you know, the tokens and the NFTs and the ownership around that, which might be more passive in some ways, but could be very active, like trading. That's a kind of game as far as they're concerned as well. 
and then juxtapose and mix that together with the people who are in Web2 gaming, or maybe even the Web3 gamers who are more active gamers involved in that environment, which is not the majority today, but is essentially a growing base. And that's where the Web2 gamers can come in, which is you know where the billions of gamers would come in. But they wouldn't necessarily be the ones who care about ownership in the same way that the people who have financial, sort of a more financial literate sense. Right? And I think, so we look for the so sort of growth of the Web3 community numbers and the adoption of those crowds as a way to measure then the success of the Web3 game, because that becomes the, the, the success base for when Web2 gamers can come in and engage. That's something that you know, came from the experiences of us having making these investments and of course building our own Web3 games you know, over the last many, well, not many years, but Web3 seems like donkey, dog years in the space. Absolutely fascinating. I'd love to go deeper on a on a whole number of topics, but unfortunately we're out of time. You know, I find the the concept of an underlying economy around really digital productivity of how people are spending time to create goods and services really compelling. In my mind, there's no reason why a painter who spends three months painting a canvas or a digital painter who spends three months painting a, a digital canvas why there is any intrinsic difference between those two pieces of output. And then once you scale that up to experiences and worlds, it becomes, and communities, it becomes even more powerful. So I really appreciate your spending time with us today and opening up these themes, and hopefully we'll have more time together. If our audience wants to learn more about you or about Animoca, where should they go? I'm most active on, on my Twitter account, which the handle is YSIU on Twitter. I do have a medium on Yatsu, but I don't post as frequently as I'd like. And of course, you can go to animocabrands.com and follow our Twitter account and also Animoca Research, where we post on a regular basis our views and research of different projects we invest in or even third-party things that we see that we think is important in our industry. Fantastic. Yat, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.